This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. A woman who illegally came to the U.S. from Mexico 20 years ago is hiding in the basement of a Denver church. Yesterday, immigration officials denied Jeanette Vizguera's request to stay in the country. She's now at the Unitarian Church, which she hopes will be a sanctuary and a place where her children can visit her. New York Times reporter Julie Turkowitz profiled Vizguera this week and joins us. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Vizguera came to the attention of federal immigration agents in 2009 when she was caught using fake documents, and her deportation was ordered at that point. How has she been for the last eight years? So Vizguera was really caught up at at a time when uh, federal authorities were working with local governments to sort of identify undocumented immigrants, and this was sort of happening all over the country. She was allowed to stay because after that period, uh, she was granted several stays of deportation, right? She was ordered, uh, deported, uh, but then granted sort of basically several waivers as her case sort of wound its way through um, our federal immigration system. And so so that's how she was able to stay, and she continued working and, and, and raising her kids here in the Denver area. Now, I understand she also has a visa application that's pending. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, sort of in a, a almost a separate parallel system in, in the U.S., we have these U visas that are available to victims of major crimes, witnesses, I believe, also of major crimes. And a couple of years ago, her lawyer helped her apply for one of these visas. So she has been waiting, essentially, to hear the response from the federal government as to whether she will be granted that visa and then could stay uh, in in the United States. The sort of problem is that the uh, application process for that type of visa is really backed up. And so that has sort of put her in, in, in a bit of a bind. The arrest and the subsequent stays meant she was supposed to go to a regular check-in at a federal office yesterday. You wrote about how difficult it was for her to decide whether or not to show up to that meeting. What was that like for her? Sure. I mean, uh, so I visited her on Tuesday night. At this point, she was in the basement of this church um, that you mentioned. It's it's not far from our capital here in Denver. And she, you know, was sort of wrestling with this decision of, do you show up for this appointment? She'd always shown up for past appointments. These are check-ins that a lot of uh, undocumented immigrants do with ICE officials. Or does she stay in the church basement? And uh, my sort of sense, uh, or, or she said it that, that night, was she really was leaning towards staying in the church basement. I think that uh, given sort of the rhetoric in the country right now, she really felt that she would be deported if she went into this ICE office to sort of show up for her regular check-in. Mm. And I think, you know, she, she she's, a, she's a mother of three children, I'm sorry, four children, but three young children, ages 6, 10, and 12. And I think she really struggled with the idea that she would be completely separated for them from them if they were deported and they essentially would have no mother. Um, and so I think that that was really the thing that she kept going back to. 
She's clearly violating the law by staying here, and she violated the law when she came to Colorado in the first place. We reached out to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they gave us a statement saying she had two misdemeanor convictions and had been ordered deported. She's been granted stays that are usually just meant to help an immigrant get ready to leave the U.S., but that was more than five years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, given all of that, uh, how does she uh, and her supporters argue she shouldn't be deported? Sure. I think that, um, you know, Ms. Isquera and, and her, her lawyers and her, you know, she, she's sort of well-known uh, in the Denver area. Her her supporters believe that sort of these deportation orders, uh, deportation priorities should should really be placed on people who are violent criminals. And uh, Ms. Vizquera's, uh, you know, crimes were misdemeanors. She pled guilty. She, she served time. And they believe that she should be able to stay here and to work and care for her children. She's been here for, for 20 years. And uh, I think that they see this as... Uh, they see a possible deportation or a deportation as not only doing harm to her, but really to her, you know, three American-born children who, you know, I spoke with at length on Tuesday night and are really distraught. There are 11 million or so undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. As a candidate, President Trump promised to broaden the scope as to who to target for deportation. Do you see what's happened to Vizguera and a few other immigrants over the past week as a sea change? You know, uh, I think it's a sea change is a, is a difficult uh, thing to predict at this point. Um, you know, President Trump has said that he is uh, doing away with this uh, Obama policy of sort of prioritizing the most violent criminals. So we certainly could see a shift, but we don't really know yet. We don't know, for example, if Ms. Izquierda, if if her the denial of her stay of deportation, the denial of her of her application to stay in the country, uh, had to do with uh, you know Donald Trump, or, or if it was would have happened under Obama. We really don't know. I, I think it's important though to to think about how the rhetoric affects people because. I think a lot of people who thought that maybe under Obama they would have been okay now really just don't know. And so that is that is causing people like Ms. Vizgeta to not show up for these kinds of meetings and, and then uh, seek refuge in a church. And that kind of thing is going to sort of spill out and have other effects. So we certainly are in a time of change. Uh, what that looks like exactly, we just don't know. You went back to the church yesterday after she found out about the deportation order. How long can she stay in the church? Sure. And you know what? I should. Uh, I, I just want to follow up a little bit on what I just said, and which is to mention that, you know, uh, President Obama uh, was criticized by uh, many people for uh, his sort of muddled uh, deport or what they saw as sort of a muddled uh, immigration policy and also deported many people. So we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that in that in this conversation, if that makes sense. Right, right. The, so to answer to answer your question of how long can the question how long can she stay? Or yeah, how long, how long is she able to stay in the church? Sure. So the, this is a church that uh, a couple of years ago uh, decided that they wanted to give uh, sanctuary to people in uh, who, in situations like this. And actually, um, uh, Miss Vizquera was was a part 
uh, of that, of, of setting up a room in the basement. It has yellow walls, two beds, polka dot comforter, a uh, lamp. Uh, it's sort of stuffed with stuff at this point. Um, She's been a longtime activist. Yes. So, 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 so she is now staying in that church. She could be there for quite some time, uh, days, weeks, months, and she said years. I believe that there have been cases of immigrants uh, who have been in uh, church basements like this for years, uh, is my understanding. The last individual who stayed in the church was there for nine months, I believe. I spoke with her lawyer yesterday afternoon after all of this had sort of... um, after we sort of realized that she would be in that basement for quite some time, and I said, you know, what what would cause her to leave? What, how how what would make it safe for her to leave? And the answers were essentially, if she's granted this U visa, uh, which, as we said, is quite backlogged, it could take quite some time, or if ICE change changes its mind, either on the sort of local level or national level, and grants a stay of deportation. Julie, we uh, have to wrap up here, but I really appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, anytime. Julie Turkowitz is a reporter for the New York Times. Seventy-five years ago, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the executive order that led to the incarceration of thousands of U.S. residents of Japanese descent. They were relocated from the Pacific coast to internment camps. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state. It was just after Pearl Harbor. Following the war, many stayed on in Denver. On Sunday, Japanese Americans will hold a day of remembrance in Denver to mark the anniversary. Lane Hirabayashi is a professor of Asian American Studies at UCLA. He'll be speaking at the event. Lane, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Andrea. What prompted the Japanese community to settle in Colorado and specifically Denver once they were released from the camps? Well, you know, I'd point out that they were here really from the the turn of the last century, although not very many. And as the uh, um, ability to leave camp came up, um, people found Denver a very suitable place to hop out of camp and start reentering society and trying to readjust to life on the outside. They were unable to go back to their West Coast homes. So Seattle, uh, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., San Diego were all under the military zone restrictions until the actual end of the war in 1945. But if people could pass uh, security clearances and they were willing to sign an oath, uh, you know, that stated they would be loyal Americans and they wouldn't congregate with other people of Japanese ancestry, they could gain work release. Uh, young men and women could gain release if a college would accept them so they could cons- uh, continue their undergraduate studies. Uh, but essentially, it was a labor force thing. And uh, Denver was very attractive to a lot of people, whether they were leaving from the northern camp of Hart Mountain in Wyoming, uh, the southern camps like uh, Poston, Arizona, or Gila River, uh, the WRA camp there, um, saw Denver as a desirable place because there was a small Japanese-American com- community formation downtown. 
and it was kind of betwixt and between so that when the war wound down, they felt like, oh, they could jump back to California if that was desirable, or they could move into the Midwest. And of course, there was a camp in Colorado called Amache. That too. Describe the scene in Denver's post-war Japanese community. What was it like? Well, um, from the pictures I've seen and the interviews I've done, we're talking essentially about, uh, uh, you know, it was a segregated area. Uh, I, I think it's accurate to call it the Larimer Corridor because it's there on uh, Larimer Street, you know, around uh, 28th, maybe between 28th and 13th or so. That was uh, where uh, folks of Japanese ancestry were allowed to rent, uh, set up small businesses and so forth because this was before the uh, day of, of uh, fair housing, free housing. So that was kind of the, the area that was designated for people of Japanese ancestry. And how big was the Japanese community uh, in the area? Well, there's no doubt that the war and the mass removal, incarceration, and then then release vastly increased the the population because we're talking about maybe 350, 370 uh, Japanese Americans in the city of Denver. But by the end of the war, we're talking about over 5,000 people. That's just Mm -hmm. in Denver. Mm -hmm. And the same kind of phenomena in the rural hinterlands. Uh, You know, maybe you had, uh, you know... um, Two, three thousand in rural Colorado, but by 1945, uh, I would guesstimate it to be somewhere around six or seven thousand people. Now, the war period is a period of great transition, so it's very hard to to guesstimate. But but I w- I would say that that maybe by uh, 45 or so, we're talking about twelve thousand people, not all of whom stayed. But, I mean, a vast increase in, in, in the population. Lane, there was a lot of hostility toward Japanese Americans who came to Denver. Talk about that. Well, you know, you have to remember that uh, FDR signs Executive Order 9066, that maybe close to two-thirds of the uh, folks of Japanese descent were U.S. citizens. And irrespective of that fact, their constitutional and civil rights were ignored and they were subject to removal en masse and then incarceration without the benefit of a trial by a jury of their peers. So I think in the minds of the larger public, this was an uh, an enemy presence, uh, a fifth column presence uh, in our midst. And um, – Release from camp, I don't think, did anything to relieve those kinds of suspicions and fears. So I feel a lot of sympathy toward those people that were coming out into a place like Denver, trying to put their best foot forward, because I think a lot of people assumed that there had been sabotage, espionage, you know, that they were suspicious en masse, when the fact is that by the end of the war, not one person of Japanese ancestry was successfully convicted of sabotage or espionage, nada. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Japanese Americans coming into a place like Denver did try to put their best foot forward, but I think that they were apprehensive. I think that there was a lot of uncertainty. And the reports I've heard are are mixed. Some uh, Denverites were very hospitable and tried to give uh, folks a chance. Uh, I think in many cases, though, that lingering suspicion of, oh, you must have been guilty of something because the president and the federal branch imprisoned you, 
Mm-hmm. And and I think that was difficult to overcome. Denver, I might add, was difficult in terms of there was a housing shortage. Uh, it was difficult for people to find jobs. It was tough. Your uncle was one of only a few Japanese-American citizens who defied orders to go to the internment camps. He was jailed and fought his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. He lost that case. Mm-hmm. But at the time, he was denounced by other Japanese-Americans. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I, I, I think it's one of those phenomena that when you're a member of an accused and, in this case, falsely accused group, there is a segment that, that's willing to bend over backwards words uh, that's going to become 110 percent American in in an effort to try and demonstrate their patriotism and their loyalty. So at the time, unfortunately, some of the community organizations uh, denounced people like my uncle that tried to resist. Uh, Even my uncle believed in the U.S. Constitution. He said, I'm not going to do this because this is against the principles uh, of the Constitution. It was also against his religious and moral principles. But some people uh, felt he was a boat rocker and didn't support him. Do you think there are any parallels between this chapter in World War II history and the current climate for Muslims in the U.S.? It's really saddening. I think in the last couple of months, the the uh, policy uh, balloons and movements we've seen, uh, a registry, um, you know, the, the notion that immigration is banned from certain countries, uh, raids, detention. These are all part and parcel of what led up to or what was entailed uh, uh, in the execution of Executive Order 9066. So from a Japanese-American perspective, recent developments are very distressing. What is the 75th anniversary of the executive order and Sunday's Day of Remembrance mean to you? Well, I think that we always want to bring to the public's attention, educationally speaking, that this took place, this affected over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, and it was a fiasco in terms of, again, not one person was successfully convicted of sabotage or espionage, and all this time, money, and and energy went into, uh, I think, a misconceived public policy. I think what we're thinking about these days is now others... Uh, are being subject to many of the same fears and suspicions. And we have to remember that prejudice, that, uh, you know, the lack of political leadership and a war crisis leads to policies that later on, I think many of us regret. Lane, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Andrea. Lane Hirabayashi is a professor of Asian American Studies at UCLA. He'll be speaking at the Day of Remembrance, sponsored by the Mile High Japanese American Citizens Leagues. That's on Sunday at the History Colorado Center. We've got photos and more at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. Loud and Clear is our chance to share the feedback coming in from listeners. One segment that got a lot of attention was Nathan Heffel's conversation with a Wyoming couple, Kelly and Chauncey Johnson. Their five-year-old daughter was killed in a skiing accident, and the couple turned the event into a crusade for safety on the slopes. A video from their campaign includes home footage of their little girl learning to ski. I ski. That's <laughs> Our life will forever be divided 
into two sections. Our life before the accident and now our life after the accident. Okay, come to dad. Listener Don Catalano shared on Twitter that she was grateful for the Johnsons' efforts. Quote, thank you for sharing their story and mission. So much love for this family. I'm deeply sorry for your loss. We also got feedback on our recent interview about Colorado's new law that allows terminally ill patients to end their lives. The Colorado End-of-Life Options Act doesn't specify what drugs should be used, and there are lingering questions about the costs of medication and which is best to administer. Bradley Williams caught the story. He's president of Montanans Against Assisted Suicide. He raised the larger question of whether the practice should be allowed. Writing on our website, I cared for my wife as she lost autonomy during her last 18 months. I learned that you can work on four hours of sleep. The corporate promoters of assisted suicide now sell with feelings of fear of losing autonomy, flying in the face of those living every day with the loss of autonomy. Thanks for your comments. Share your reactions and your story ideas through CPRnews.org. Click Contact at the top of the page. We're CPR News on Facebook and at Colorado Matters on Twitter. Andrea, back to you. So every few years, there's a familiar debate in education circles. Does more money make schools better? As part of her ongoing series on school finance, CPR's Jenny Brundine took on this question. She spoke to an elementary principal who used to think all it took was great teachers. Now she thinks money does matter. When Lynn Bajaj became principal at Field Elementary in Littleton, one of the first things she noticed... The staffing resources were pretty incredible. Littleton is a wealthier district with a handful of high-poverty schools. In fact, Field was demographically about the same as her old school in the Sheridan District that borders Littleton, just a few miles away. Very high poverty and about 40 to 50 percent English language learners. Good. Did you have a good weekend? Four years ago, district officials noticed that while most of Littleton schools topped the academic charts, High Poverty Field was struggling. So they decided to do something different. They gave the school extra money. They added an assistant principal. They added English language development teachers. They added a social worker. They added coaching, significant instructional coaching. And it's in the classroom where you can see whether targeted dollars are making a difference. First, they added money for more English language teachers. Here's what used to happen before the extra money. English language learners would get pulled out of class a few times a day for up to 45 minutes to work on vocabulary, try to get caught up. So a lot of times they'd go back into the classroom. English language teacher Lene Nelson. And they missed something else, and then we're trying to get them caught up or trying to help them with something different. Now, instead of pulling English language learners out, the English language teacher is in a class a few hours a day with the regular classroom teacher. So with two teachers... One of them can help me, and another one can help the others. Fourth grader Atenencio Chavez-Lopez is sprawled on the carpet with a small group of English language learners. What do you think a wide range of food means? Big animals. Not big animals. A wide range means they eat lots Nelson of can immediately help them out with what the word means. And a few steps away... So, Dylan, this is what I'm noticing, babe. And you have to tell me if you're not understanding the assignment I gave you. Fourth grade teacher Camille McCullough 
also on the floor with a different group, notices that keeping the English language learners in class to interact with their peers and not lose content has led to dramatic changes. Field students' academic growth is now above the state average, and the school has gone from near the bottom on the state report card to the top. Fifth grade teacher Sally Moore says with two teachers in the class, even for a few hours a day, one can circulate, help a kid who doesn't understand, or assist with a behavior issue. When both of us are in the classroom at the same time, there's a calm and there's a, it's just, instruction just happens the way you think it should happen all the time. Many of these kids don't have parents who can help them with homework. So the second thing Money Bot was win-win time, or what I need. Okay, watch my mouth, honey. The school uses some of its money to extend the school day an extra half hour for all students. Teachers use data to figure out exactly what a small group of kids needs to work on. Let's do it. One, two, three. These first graders need help decoding words. Er, fur. Are you ready for a challenge? Yes. Are you sure? And this extra half hour has brought gains. And lastly, food pantry will also be on The third thing Money bought at Field Elementary School, an assistant principal and social worker. When Bajaj arrived, there were kids lined up outside the principal's office for disruptions and behavioral issues. Bajaj says many kids have challenges that make it hard for them to learn. Things very dramatic, like a parent being incarcerated. Or, or the family losing their housing. So the assistant principal helps meet families' needs so children can learn. She also developed a school-wide behavior plan. And she gives Bajaj time to be a better principal, visiting classes more often to make sure instruction is top-notch. So several years later, Principal Bajaj has had a change in philosophy. It doesn't mean that you can put anybody in there. You still have to have really high-quality teachers who are willing to work really hard. But if you have the funding for those people, it is a dramatic difference. District leaders research learning models that helped underperforming students improve. They're using techniques from other schools in Colorado and other states. Bajaj still thinks about her students in Sheridan District, just a couple of miles away, where the teachers are working just as hard, but without the extra support staff she has. I think about that all the time. And it's not fair that they don't have the funding. It's not fair that they have one English language teacher for 340 kids and I have six. But the teachers at Field wonder how long their good fortune can last. What's worked at Field, district officials want to roll out at the other high-poverty school. And short on funds, that means cutting back resources at Field. I'm Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. And that's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is listener-supported Colorado Matters from CPR News.